Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next 50 years. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, the co-host of Biotech 2050, along with Alok. I'm the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a technology platform where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapeutics. I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Lee Cooper, to the podcast. He's a seasoned biotech entrepreneur, patient advocate, and most recently founded Enlight Bio. Lee, welcome. Thrilled to have you on. We'd love to just hear a bit about your background and your career arc over, uh, over the last several years. Thanks for having me. Lee Cooper, background in biotech. I actually started, though, undergraduate thinking I'd be pre-med and majored in religion as a way to complement an interest in life sciences and medicine. I always thought that it's important to have that sort of qualitative, ethical grounding to things. But then when I dropped the pre-med, I wasn't grounded to anything. I was just in pure humanities. Uh, I was able to luckily to land, though, after undergraduate, a a job at a boutique consulting firm doing business development and uh, commercial strategy for biotech and and pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I knew consulting wasn't a long-term path for me. ended up going back to school for my JD and my MBA. And the JD was actually more what I was interested in. Again, knowing that I wasn't going to be a doctor or a, a research scientist, I've looked at law as a, a sort of a technical grounding from a different perspective. It's not engineering, but it's, it's another form of thinking about the world and institutions in a kind of concrete systemic uh, systems thinking sort of way. And the MBA, I think, was to overcompensate for the fact that I was, I was still insecure about my religion major. Uh, I have no regrets about it. It was, it was excellent. And, and it's one of those things that's come full circle, and it's really supported a lot of the work I've done recently, you know, representing either the patient voice or as an entrepreneur, being able to really, I think, speak in, in practical and moral language is important. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I think in biomedicine, sometimes we miss that. And we think a lot about the, the empirical aspects, uh, which are exciting, of course. I mean, the innovations are incredible, but it all has to relate back to people. Otherwise, there's no point. So anyway, so I, uh, yes, yeah, so after graduate school, I got into kind of what I went for, which is corporate development and, and transactional work. During school, I worked for Goodwin Proctor, a, a great law firm here in Boston that focuses on life sciences. And then I ended up in corporate development at Moderna Therapeutics, a company over in Kendall Square. And I worked there because it was a really great breadth of therapeutic areas to cover based on a really broad technology platform. And so there was really interesting opportunities to do licensing transactions, operational partnerships with contract research organizations, all sorts of things, learning what it takes to really grow a company that's moving at light speed. And I eventually left there to work with a large biotech investor in town uh, as an entrepreneur in residence. And we ended up seeding a company in Light Bio. I've been getting off the ground as a, as a virtual biotech company, which maybe we'll touch on as well, a very different company building model. And that's been focused on reproductive medicine and clinical genetics. There's so many interesting areas going on in biotech. I think those two in particular are really fascinating with new, new technologies enabling a lot of different therapies, diagnostics, and improved care for patients. So yeah, so generally that's, that's been my background. One of the topics that we'd love to cover today, which we think we, we all are quite interested in, is this concept of patient centricity as we're developing new therapeutics. And 
particular trends that we're seeing in terms of uh, things that are enabling more patient centricity. I know uh, you wanted to talk a bit about perhaps your own journey. As I said, I've, I've always had an interest in the, the social sciences and humanities in general, and then particularly I enjoy being the person in the room who's not the MD or PhD, who, who has some formal and just informal interest in that. And, but then I also have personal experience as a rare genetic disease patient myself. And I got into this industry before I discovered that. And so it's something I've thought about for a long time. But then just a few years ago, I won't go into the details, but I did discover uh, my own uh, a monogenic condition that nearly killed me and forced me to go through a, you know, an arduous patient journey of my own. And I'd already been working in rare, rare genetic diseases as a consultant before at a law firm and in a fast-growing biotech company. And I woke up in a hospital and said, like maybe many people go through a, a near-death experience, am I happy with what I'm doing with my life? And actually I was able to say, yeah, because, you know, for example, I now have a medical device implanted in me and I have that because some large, very large cap medical device company was able to develop that and get that through studies and sell that to my physicians who then prescribed it for me. And the, the way that technology got into that company was because some corporate development folks and executives at a small biotech company out on the West Coast that developed this technology were able to sell it to that bigger company. And the way that that technology got to that little biotech company is because some academics had some really good research, you know, some bioengineering innovations, and somebody took a bet on them as, as an early stage venture, right? And that's, that's how the ecosystem works. And, I, you know, I've been a beneficiary of it, and I'm sure you guys have in your own ways, and family and friends have, and we've all been through something with someone who gets sick or just wants to stay well. But having that diagnosis did change my frame, of course, and it made me think a lot more about how every single decision we make can better infuse the needs, the wants, and just the real life experiences of the people whom are impacted by it, the integration of any of these technologies in our medical care. And so, you know, like patient centricity, it's a term that it's like a buzzword that gets thrown around, right? It's like saying that you're innovative, right? Like, yeah. what, what, what is it? We're innovative and we're patient centric, right? And um, I'm doing personalized medicine, right? And so it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, and that will go raise like thirty million dollars Series A, and we have AI behind it. <laughs> but that's um, but but really, I mean, it's like one of those things that you know it when you see it, right? When you're in an organization, you can tell the, it's like the culture. When you go in for a job interview where you're getting pitched as a co potential customer of any company, you can tell right away when, when an executive or you know it's a team or a company really believes in what they're doing. But I think it also is about vision, right? Because it's not just mission in terms of what do we want to execute on and does that sound laudable, but it's about the vision of what's the world you're trying to create. So I think we actually overuse the term mission-driven and vision-driven matters in healthcare. Um, and I think in, in, the, in the tech world, there's less talk of vision because I think it's sometimes less clear and because actually the kind of extreme outcome of a lot of the visions that are out there would be dystopic. <laughs> and so, but I think if your vision is to, you know, cure a disease, then that needs to be front of mind. Your, your mission every day when you go to work might not be curing the disease. It might be bringing a certain therapy to, to market, but that bigger vision is what impacts people and keeps your moral compass on track. I think about patient centricity a lot in that regard. I think a big trend, and I'm sure I'd love to hear both your thoughts on this with your background more on the software and tech side than, than my own, is the convergence we're seeing with traditional biotech models and consumer healthcare and digital health models. And I think the beauty of Silicon Valley and, and, and the culture there and the innovation, for lack of a better word, that happens there is really that we have individuals and companies that really understand how to please consumers and how to get into their fingertips and how to get into their minds and manipulate behavior. 
And at the end of the day, the greatest healthcare changes we're going to see are going to be from behavioral change, right? It's not a molecule. It's not a device. We, we all know that prevention is more powerful than any therapeutic we could ever envision. And prevention, 99% of the time, involves behavioral change, right? Whether it's your diet, whether it's taking prophylactic medicine, whether it's not smoking, it's the one thing correlated with almost every single disease. And so if you, could, if you can magically convince people to not do that through digital means, through positive feedback loops with software that, are, you know, that have an admirable vision behind them, uh, that's going to be the greatest change we see in healthcare. The problem, of course, is that the danger with software and with consumer-driven, purely consumer-driven business models is that I think they do tend to lose their ethical mooring at times because when the business model is not predicated on improving a health outcome, but by increasing the number of clicks or increasing eyeball time or generating ad revenue of some sort, as much, even if you have the most passionate, positive vision-driven entrepreneur, at some point, you know, the hammer is going to drop. And when your metrics are tied to ad revenue, guess where the company strategy is going to be guided? Towards ad revenue. Yeah. Well, so, so I'm curious, you know, on that front, both, I think you brought up a really interesting topic around how companies today are thinking about, from a ethical standpoint, technology right? Obviously Google, Facebook, all the privacy issues that are happening there and data. But then separately, there's also a parallel but non-convergent stream in the pharmaceutical industry when it comes to pricing, access, etc. So it sounds like what you're also really curious about is when those two technology platforms overlap, there's a new set of ethical constraints or topics that emerge. Is that fair? Yeah. And actually, I would add one not having thought it through ahead of time, I think there's sort of broadly two threads or streams of ethical concerns on the, in the biopharma side of things. One is what you talked about. That's sort of getting at the business ethics of it almost and, and the kind of the social contracts that we draw for innovation policy. We're trading you a few billion in profits for a treatment that's going to help millions of lives. That's the trade, right? At some point, it's going to go generic, and then society will benefit from that genericization of that product. But the other piece, really important ethical piece, and this is actually what I think overlaps more with what you're talking about on the tech side, biased algorithms and racially, quote unquote, agnostic algorithms that actually end up not being agnostic and, and, and things like that, is the true traditional bioethics, not the business ethics of biology. Those are two different things. But true bioethics, like if you, if you Google bioethicists at Harvard or Stanford and look up the top bioethicists out there, the types of things they write about are about the intersection of biological research with individual rights. So those are things like consent, right? And that's something that is coming up in tech as well, right? We, we are all wittingly or unwittingly involved in A-B testing for Facebook every time we log on to Facebook. Imagine if it's a impanel an IRB, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? It would be yeah. insane. Innovation wouldn't happen then. And so the, there's obviously going to be a middle ground. But conversely, a lot of our modern frameworks for bioethics were developed after World War II and the Nazi era atrocities that occurred with eugenics and other forms of misguided, often pseudoscience driven thinking. And that's where the whole field of genetic counseling in the U.S. actually emerged out of wanting to advance the field of genetics, but create a bit of a buffer and a gatekeeper for the patients to make sure they were empowered and protected. When you enter a clinical trial, you actually have to understand what you're signing up for. And that's only heightened if you're trying to enroll elderly or pediatric patients into a trial. They, you really have to make sure that those people understand and that their guardians understand what they're enrolling in. That's just one example. Um, data protection is another example, though. That That's a perfect overlap, right, where you're talking about some pretty sensitive information now. When you get your genome sequenced, is the company sequencing it um, really on the cutting edge of data security? 
and I don't have that expertise, and most people at most biotech companies don't have that expertise, but you're seeing a convergence of talent then even that, that's going to have to occur. Yeah. You're going to have to have the world-class team from Google that understands how to protect the cloud better than anybody in the world working with biotech companies and offering services can outsource some of that. But some of that does have to be, I think, intrinsic in the way you start a company if you're really concerned about long-term protecting the privacy of your patients. On that topic, though, like, do you think about uh, security also from like a regulatory standpoint, which is we're starting to see folks like in the EU set up regulations like GDPR or in China set data residency laws where you can't export genetic data of Chinese citizens outside of China, right? How do you think that piece of the dynamics in the regulatory landscape is going to change, you know, the biotech piece? Tricky one. Um, and I'm not, an ex- uh, I am a lawyer by training. I'm not a regulatory expert on that. But I think for a lot of, whether it's in tech or biotech, and this isn't political moment now, is not a time of nuanced conversation. I think we all can agree on that. And this is an area, though, that really does require dialogue and nuanced conversation. Because uh, bioethics and ethics of any type, to me, is a process. It's not a set of rules. It's not about checking boxes. It's about actually engaging and understanding, okay, this is the way culture is moving. This is the way technology is moving. How are they interacting? And that can change on a weekly basis these days. And so you need to have frameworks that are more dynamic than just a bunch of boxes you can check. And so from that perspective, like the knee-jerk reactions that you see, I mean, just recently a a merger with a large patient-focused healthcare company where a, a large collaboration they had with a Chinese company was blocked by the government. And there were a lot of really negative reactions to that and I think some of those negative reactions were founded and because a lot of it does have to do with process. You know, in any regulatory system, you want companies to know ex ante what they're entering into, right? Otherwise, they can make decisions that imperil the company because they've already now gone not just one step down the line towards a certain collaboration the government's going to block, but 10 steps down that line. And now they've kind of passed the point of no return. And now they have no anchor anymore and they're just stuck. And then when the government breaks up a potential collaboration, the company just has to sell itself in a fire sale. Um, and that's not fair. But I think, again, the more nuanced conversation around that is, is reasonable. It's, is, is American patient data sitting in Chinese data warehouses a national security issue? I don't know the answer to that, but that's a real conversation that needs to be had. And that's, that's not just one congressional hearing. I mean, that's a, a very, there's a lot of different technical expertise that are going to have to intersect to answer that question. And, and there won't be one answer, and it's going to be dynamic. But that's not just a, oh, the government's stopping innovation. That, that can't be your answer either, right? Yes, yes, it's slowing down innovation potentially. But again, with healthcare, it's not, it's not pure tech. And we're, we're talking about patient lives, patient data, and people's behavior relative to their health. I think there's a trend right now where you're, you're thinking that you're blocking innovation, but we certainly need to protect patient rights first and foremost. And I think the point that you brought up about nuanced conversation um, you know, I think what, what will happen is that we will slow down innovation because there, there are going to be folks that are overly conservative because they don't understand data privacy laws. They don't understand what patient consent is, et cetera. I think over the next decade or so, it's going to take us some time to figure it out. And I'm hoping then we really hit our stride in terms of the application of both tech and, and biotech. Pendulums often swing back and forth a little bit harder and faster than we'd like, right, when we're, we're trying to create new things. I, I agree. I think that that may happen. I think also, especially if there's an emotional component to it, too, right, like genomic data or personal data, health data. You know, actually, uh, Rahul, from your perspective, I'm curious if you've started to see more biotech companies get interested in this problem around data governance, data security. You know, uh, as we all know, right, biotech, especially in the early days, is a data business, more or less. 
do you feel like there's that level of awareness and investment that's happening or is it still considered, oh, you know, it's my IT guy's going to take care of it. You know, the same guy who cares about the Ethernet cable is going to handle, you know, GDPR. Compared to, let's say, five, six years ago when we were you know, working at, when I was working at a relatively early stage biotech, we never brought it up. I think now earlier stage companies are bringing it up much earlier on in terms of company creation. But I do think that the larger multinational billion dollar market cap companies are, are focusing on it a lot more than early stage companies are. I think the more, when we stop using the word innovative now, um, but the, the, the companies that are really thinking about what they plan to do with all of this data that they're collecting are bringing in data security experts early on and, and looking for consultants to help with thinking through that strategy when they're years away from launch. So I think uh, some companies are doing it, but much more so, you know, the, the Vertexes and the, the Alexians of the world are doing a lot more of it because they have the capital to deploy and something that's easy to be in the foreground until it become, until there's some mishap. I think, though, um, to push back a little bit on what you said, I think companies are going to come to realize, like many things that involve changes that feel cumbersome, actually are part of a, a virtuous cycle that create value. And it isn't about, it's not capital spent, it's capital invested, yeah. right? And because the same companies that are going to be really good at controlling and securing their data are probably going to be ones that are good at using it. Having a chief digital officer of a company may feel like a cost to people who are thinking really from an old timer mindset yes. about it, right? Oh, why I'm going to I'm going to spend an executive seat on my company at somebody who's thinking about data. Yeah, you are, because that's also how you're going to accelerate drug discovery, right? When you start thinking about how are you going to, the reason you're keeping that data in the cloud and need it to be really secure is because you want to be able to leverage every bit of animal data you have, every bit of human data you have, any, any in vitro assay data you have to accelerate drug discovery, right? And so I think they actually, they're intimately connected in, in ways that it's sometimes surprising how long it takes some companies, I think, to get up that part of the curve, but I think more will. I hope so. I think they need to. I think the companies that have a comprehensive data strategy will generally hire, make those investments and they're approaching it as investments rather than just a, a CYA of having somebody that they can say, here, you go take care of this. This is my, this is my IT guy. You know, uh, we had a, a guest on uh, the other day who, when we asked them the question of how they balance external investment, you know, external resources, outsourcing versus internal, they use the concept of CapEx to articulate it's not about the amortization. It's not about if it's hardware or software or whatever. It's about the notion of whether we see this investment as having a continual payoff in the future. And I feel like that's sort of what's tying together what you guys are sort of talking about, which is, yeah, if it's an OPEX thing, one and done, transact dollars for service. But if it's a CapEx, we're looking to sort of see this as a continuous piece of our operations and also something that hopefully will deliver value on an ongoing basis as well. Yeah, and I think for an earlier stage company, that's where picking your investors well matters, right? That's And this is in tech as well, um, but in biotech too, right? It, when you have your first conversation with an investor or even early executives that are going to be joining your team, how do they talk about it? Right? Do they talk about it? It's like the patient centricity thing. Like, yeah. do, do they really care about it or not? You can tell if if they view data creation as a resource, or do they view it as a liability? Right, and like that's that's something you can glean pretty quickly from talking to someone about it. In that regard, like as you think about how biotech evolves and is trajected so far, there's obviously a, a key piece here, which is in order to be patient centric, we need to bring more innovation to the table. And I love, you know, in your at least personal bio, how you've 
mapped out the journey of technology from the patient who gets the implant, in your case, all the way back to that academician who had that idea, who sort of developed it in a university lab. One of the things that we're starting to see, I think, across the board is both an aspect of modularization and velocity that's gained from having access to resources on demand in the same way we do Uber and Lyft. So what's been your experience uh, having seen a couple different biotechs at the early stages in the context of having access to systems and platforms and capabilities and its ability to sort of drive the drug development process? Yeah, I remember for some reason, one of the conversations I remember so distinctly when I first went into an actual company, not not as a service provider, not as a consultant or as a lawyer or as an advisor, but actually working in a company, you know, really getting to know the teams and the different research groups and their different subcultures and whatnot, talking to um, a protein engineer who just told me that he felt like a kid in the candy store, being at a well-funded biotech company where, you know, to clone one antibody, he spent, you know, a year of his PhD, you know, working on that. And, and, and the generation before him, that would have been a whole PhD. To actually, That would have gotten you the PhD. But it was a, a huge lift for him. Now at a company, he could just call off one of the top CROs and pay a few tens of thousands of dollars, and, and he has a handful of clones he can use for experiments. And to me, that was like a light bulb went on saying, wow, this is part of the difference between the academic context and the private sector. And I think as um, more services and products become modularized or outsourced in high quality ways, I think that is also going to enable a different type of innovation because if an academic lab doesn't have to put huge capital expenditures in and pay exorbitant fees to outsource providers who are really bespoke and expensive and there's people out there who can offer it cheaply and freely and kind of turn the faucet on and off as you need, they're going to be able to do more. And that's going to then, by definition, change the way that investors capitalize startups and the way that entrepreneurs have choices. And so I, I think that's um, the biggest and most important trend probably happening in biotech now, where it's becoming more tech-like in a very positive way. I'm sure, you know, it's almost like a, a, a joke, a trope of, of saying, you know, we're the, you know, we're the Uber for blank or we're the AWS for blank. But really, to be the AWS for the dozens of things that are requisite to build a good biotech company, any one of those things can be great business and are really going to change the rate of discoveries that happen. And it's going to be faster and cheaper to get new drugs, new devices, new diagnostics out into the clinic. So I think that's it's one of the biggest trends right now. Um, you don't need to be a multi-hundred million dollar capitalized company to access really good bioinformatics capabilities now. There are companies that can go really deep on genomic analysis for really niche types of diseases and chromosomal anomalies and all sorts of things for really a few dollars because people have turned it into software. And that's a trend that's going to continue. If we look back at, you know, 10 years ago where you really didn't have that optionality, you needed to get hundreds of millions of dollars in funding to get anywhere close to potentially the clinic right now. I think the modularization of I think it's, you know, given the episodic nature of so much of what we do. And as you go from one inflection point to the next, you need very different resources around whether it's capital equipment or intellectual capacity. I just think of it from a from an R and D efficiency perspective of what what can we do to truly accelerate development, but also de-risk development because you have multiple shots on goal with by having this optionality that didn't exist a decade ago. Yeah, I mean anything that makes faster and cheaper to yeah. make new drugs is great, and I think it also gets more interesting for entrepreneurs and opens up the field to different types of entrepreneurs, right? Because then the question of strategy becomes more meaningful, right? When you don't have to build it all yourself, strategy becomes more nuanced. 
and the winners are going to not just going to be people who are the best, who had maybe the best idea and were able to get the most capital, but who really thought carefully about which pieces do I want to build myself to have a sustainable in-house advantage or what are we going to be better at than everybody else that can buy it off the shelf from somebody else versus what do we just buy, right? And, and where, where do we allocate our resources that way? And I think that's almost more fun from an entrepreneurship perspective. And again, it opens up the field a little bit to, to less traditional types of entrepreneurs, which I would hope just leads to more creative ideas. I think we're already seeing it. I mean, we're, we're um, there are a handful of companies right now where they were founded by folks from finance and they're running biotech companies and they're founded by an engineer, a guy named uh, Ben Caymans, who is the founding engineer at Khan Academy now, is running a biotech called Spring Discovery, which are focused on you know applying machine learning to drug discovery for aging. Uh, so I, I think we're already starting to see it, and it's going to happen more and more frequently over the next couple of years because of that trend. Yeah, it's really exciting. I think we do need to be careful, though, too, yeah. right? Where when, Whenever there's a flood of people from finance to any industry, <laughs> you have to be I don't know, spoken yeah. by someone who has an MBA. You know, you, you, whenever the MBAs are all going to one industry, you got to actually like think, hmm, how are we going to separate now the wheat from the chaff? And I think that's the job. Of, that is the job of investors. And that's why the signaling power of really high quality investors is still real. But yeah, overall, it, it's a great trend to have more creative minds in the field than, than fewer. One question I guess I'm curious to get both your perspectives on is as the velocity of drug development increases because of this on-demand modular nature, one of the things we've seen in tech is that the types of people you bring on and the cadence with which you bring on changes rapidly. How are you seeing the talent piece as a thread of that change in both velocity but also model of drug development? There's no one answer to this. The first thing that comes to mind for me is the difference between biology and engineering. They're very different fields and different expertise, and they move at very different paces. Biology is really hard. Not that engineering is not hard, but biology can be very uncertain, very hard, and that's why the life sciences industry is booming. It's a few small innovations and actually understanding the mechanisms behind certain biological functions can open up whole new fields of of medicines and, and diagnostics. But if the biology is uncertain, you're working on uncertain foundation. So you can try to scale things. You can engineer things. You can layer on all these now modular technologies. But if you have a shaky foundation, you're layering on these wonderful engineering tools onto something that could collapse. I think what's happening is there are some people who are forming new companies and and doing venture creation in a way that's flipping the old model on its head, which is it is assuming now that bioinformatics talent is actually more of a not to devalue them, but it's more of a commodity than the basic science. Mm-hmm. If you just have a, you know, a crack team of the scalable engineering type skills at your service, and as soon as you identify an area of biology where the foundation seems to be strengthening and you throw that team at that biology, that's where you have a good probability of success. The larger venture funds that are focused on venture creation sort of take that approach, right? Where it's about having a really good team around a big idea where there seems to be some crystallizing biology, as opposed to saying, let's wait for a perfect asset here and then build a team around it or put it through the right value inflection points and the right clinical development program, which, Raul, you know much more about than, than I do. And so that's really interesting. It's thinking about how do we then build this team and have this bench of people that understand the technologies and understand how to pull in the right CROs and the right off-the-shelf tools and the right on-demand talent as soon as we see an area of biology that we think is about to crystallize and we want to be ahead of the curve and have the right team around it as it does. I think that's maybe what we're going to start seeing more and more of, um, not just here in, in, in Kendall Square in Boston, but elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. The companies that I think do this really well are those that 
have a really good understanding of what do we want to be world class at and what are our core competencies and what's the other stuff that we're okay with somebody else doing but we know that we are going to be we want to be amazing at this and we're going to do all of this stuff internally i think the issue with talent right now in the industry is that there's a war for talent across biotech and i think a lot of that is because of how much venture creation is happening right now where there's there's new companies popping up in hotbeds of biotech every other week with massive rounds of, of funding uh, but i think that the challenge becomes that just going back to kind of episodic nature of work is that there are true trade-offs in terms of what's the stuff that you want to do internally and what are the opportunity costs of doing this stuff internally and I think the, the paradigm in biotech, and I'll talk more about the, the clinical side, is that you end up outsourcing a lot when you get into the clinic. And I think there needs to be a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of how we get clinical work done because we're outsourcing to, let's say, CROs uh, at the clinical stage, but some of those CROs don't really have access to the best of the best. And so you can certainly de-risk the execution of a clinical program by making sure that you have folks that have been there and done that before. And this is, this is part of the, the trade-off, which is that do we, do we want to build, let's say, clinical teams in-house? Do we want a hybrid model or do we want to outsource entirely? And I think the companies that have decided that the way that we execute our clinical programs is going to be part of our core competency and we're going to come up with a hybrid model are those companies that, that are able to get new products to market faster and far more cost effectively because that is a big piece of R&D efficiency right now that I see is, is lacking is a shift in terms of how to get clinical work done. Some of the experience I've seen in this space, I think it also varies by therapeutic area. Yeah. Oncology, for example, as far away as we are from cures for cancer, for most types of cancer, in some ways you're actually fighting over patients. There's so many studies out there and there's a bunch of really good centers of excellence for oncology. You're fighting over the patients and, and you want their clinician to pick your study over a competitor study. Whereas in a rare genetic disease, it's about finding the patients in the first place, right? We all know where to find a patient who has cancer. You go to a cancer center. How do you find a patient that has a disease that's never been diagnosed before because there was no treatment for it before, right? And so I think that's where biotech isn't uniform, right, of course. And so there's going to be differences based on therapeutic area nuances yeah, and how you find patients. Interesting. So when you think about the approach to sort of building biotech companies in the modern era, you've obviously been involved in some of the more prominent sort of venture creation models as well as, you know, had a unique sort of um, entrepreneurial journey in that regard. I'm, I'm curious, one of the forks in the road that happens early that we've all heard about is this differentiation between a asset-focused company versus a platform-focused company. I'm curious to hear your thoughts having sort of seen and sort of been in the ecosystem and having taken sort of that approach. Yes, it's a big topic. I think, like many things, there's no right answer. Any given technology can go a bunch of different directions. There's three ways you can answer this question, I think, or probably many more. One is as an investor, one's as kind of founding team, and one's as a prospective employee looking at one of these companies, right? I think the latter is actually the easiest one to answer. It's a, it's a personality thing, right? Some people love working with a really concrete asset. They know exactly, you see the patients that you're going to be impacting very clearly. You know who they are. And it's a much more linear path. It's not safer from an outcome perspective, but you know strategically, you know where you're gonna, where you need to go, and you can just march in that direction. Some people like the ambiguity of a platform and the uncertainty of it, and the kind of the multifarious nature of it, where you're you're going in a lot of different directions. So that's, from an employee perspective, I think it's a lot. Whether you're a bioinformatician or a clinops person or a legal transactions person, 
Um, that's just personality. From the investor and the founding team perspective, there's often no right answers. Maybe sometimes there is. Some of it is just trend-based. Certain investors or the whole field can get burned by a few platform companies that went bad or by a few big single-asset bets that went bad when they hit the public markets or something like that or just seeing a string of failures in a row of companies of a certain type that are probably uncorrelated and they're probably unrelated. And it's probably just total chance that three companies in a row that were complete disasters were platform companies or three companies in a row that were complete disasters were single asset immuno oncology companies. You know, we're human. That's how we process things. And so I think sometimes it's actually totally irrational. <laughs> but from a valuation perspective, it's difficult in the long run to eventually a platform company has to become an asset company, right? So you, at some point you have to make that choice. Again, from an investor perspective, too, there's re the returns are an aspect, but also going back to the employee thing, it's what you enjoy and what you, what you have fun with and the type of connections you have, the type of exits you want and what your fun's about, right? If your fun is built around the idea of several small acquisitions by big pharma, then you want to be doing single assets. If your fund is built around hitting a couple big grand slams, you know, textile, you know, getting a Google and a Facebook out there, it's probably going to be a platform, not a single asset. Well, that's not always even true necessarily, but that's likely what you're going to be doing. So I think it really just, it depends where you are. To, to build a broad platform, or to be very thesis driven around emerging biology, you need to have that team in place or access to talent and somehow. But I think it's unlikely that you would see an incredible platform company emerge out of nowhere from some non-major hub of biotech activity, both from a capital and a talent perspective. Yeah, you know, the, the executives who've been there and done it before are going to understand how to, how to navigate a difficult R&D process and, and raising the right amount of capital and all that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I think uh, also from the platform standpoint, there's the most common platform, which is like a, from a biological or from a therapeutic or molecule standpoint. But there is also a platform component when you start thinking about things like, say, HTS, so there are companies like Recursion who have developed platforms, but more in the digital sense, and see machine learning and computer vision as the platform as opposed to the therapeutic platform, which I think is a different take. It's more of a play on words than it is necessarily uh, the same company building mentality, maybe. I, I love that point and, and that, that approach to it, where I think even when you asked me the question, the first thing that came to mind was... I assumed, which you know, it's a big assumption, that in either case, you're going to be the company developing the drugs. Mm -hmm. But again, because of the, the broader modularization trend that's happening, and I do think it's real. Some of it's overstated at times, and we're still in the middle of an adoption curve, and things are changing. But um, why not build a platform that doesn't have to think about clinical studies, mm -hmm. that is just spinning out assets for other people to use, right? And you don't have to own the whole process. And so I do think that's an, a really important point, and that when you're thinking about whether you want to build a platform, it's also what type of platform. Do you actually want to be a full drug discovery and development platform, or do you just want to be drug discovery? Or do you want to just help other people? Is, is it plug and play enough that you can just help other people do drug discovery or development or whatever the case may be? And as the, the industry matures, like any industry, I think people are just getting more creative and, and willing to, to try new things. And so I think that's actually where there's more exciting things to come, which is how can we turn what before were traditionally bespoke biologic platforms that you kind of needed to be a, a one-stop shop to, to get the right investment. But now there's enough innovators out there, there's enough entrepreneurs out there who have experience where you can actually use your core competency and give them the ability to, to, to run with it and just make the best drugs. You know, any final thoughts as you think about that journey, I guess, of compounds uh, or concepts from, you know, the academician's mind to the clinic? 
to take a step back and look really big picture, I think most people that hear about drug development hear it through the lens of the outcry over drug prices. And I don't want to go into too deeply because that's a whole other topic of discussion. And But the part of it that I, I think it is important is what we're talking about, which is alluding to along the way here, is that it's an ecosystem. And um, innovation policy from a legal and regulatory perspective, but also from an on-the-ground perspective and an ethical perspective, it has to think holistically about this, right? It's not just about the whatever side you fall on the different aspects of the argument and different case-by-case. Case. Um, I think all of us can agree it's, it's, it's not right to, to charge people too much for insulin that is pretty easy to manufacture and people are dying because they can't get their insulin and, and it's been a product that's been on the market for years. But most cases aren't those obvious cases, right? Most of the time we're in the gray area. Uh, and I think it's just important to keep that whole spectrum in mind, that we need government funding for basic science. We need venture funding for basic science and for early discovery. We need a strong big pharma ecosystem that can buy these drugs and know how to bring them through the clinic and get them to patients commercially. And sometimes they will have outsized profits. It just shouldn't feel and look like it's predatory, right? And so that's the balance we have to strike. But I think the only way we're going to get there is, again, through more nuanced conversations that look at the whole spectrum. Whenever you zoom in on one part of it, you're probably not going to come up with an answer that, that fits the other parts. And they're all so related. You know, I take a drug every night before bed now. I have a device in my body. Neither of those would exist if it was just big pharma or just little biotech or just venture funds forming new companies or just academics at top centers uh, coming up with ideas and developing IP and tech transfer offices, you know, packaging them up for investors. You, know, you need all those pieces. And so I think it's important to, to keep that big picture in mind, even as we're trying to solve little problems that fall within one piece of it. I, I'd reiterate again, though, that I think the power we have in our hands with biological tools now is just incredible. Um, and with power comes responsibility. And I think bioethics and who we want to be as a biotech ecosystem, who we want to be as a country and as a species is always on the line these days with the types of technologies we have. And we need to think about patient in front of us, patient you know that's in our family, and also the vision we have for what we want humanity to look like and what we want healthcare to look like. And it, we're at that point where the technologies are that strong. And I think it's not optional anymore to think about the implications of our choices. Great. Well, really wise words and I think a great set of closing remarks for us. So Lee, thank you so much for joining us today and keen to see sort of how uh, these topics play out and we'd love to have you back on the podcast soon. Good luck with the podcast. I'm excited to hear uh, all, the, all the future episodes coming along. Thank you for listening to our first episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is co-hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's produced by Jean Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.